You're listening to The Brilliant Ones Podcast with me, your host, Donnie Adams, a show about entrepreneurs and the companies they build. Join me weekly as I speak with entrepreneurs from all over who share their experiences and advice on the companies they created. And be sure to follow us on YouTube and Instagram at The Brilliant Ones. Hey, folks, thanks for tuning in for another episode of The Brilliant Ones Podcast. Have a special guest with me, Christy Otto, CMO and co-founder of vClick3D. Christy, Hello. welcome. Hello. Great to meet you. Great Thanks to... for having me on, Donnie. Yeah, no, appreciate it. Thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah, I'm super excited because you've done some really interesting things. I mean, being, you know, CM, uh, CEO of Inspire Living, right? Mm-hmm. The things that you're doing at vclick 3 d and then your, your consultant agency. Um, I'm super excited to dive in. And, you know, I always start this off, but since I'm always... Uh, I'm in Austin, Texas, and this is a great place. And I know you, uh, just looking at your background, you went to school up uh, up north in uh, D.C. Well, actually, I went to college in Arizona. Okay. I'm, I'm OG Texan. Okay. Um, and I, I went to college in Arizona and got a master's at Thunderbird, and then I ended up on the East Coast after I got married, mm-hmm. which I swore I would never go. But that's where I ended up. No, so never say never. That's lesson number one, uh-huh. <laughs> right? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so at, during COVID, um, I sold my house in Virginia, and we we own a large. Well, we used to own a large ranch that had been in the family for a hundred years here in Texas, and decided to sell. My brother wanted to retire. He was kind of running it for us, and none of nobody else wanted to come take up the the mantle. So I came back to kind of help with that and just ended up in Austin, mostly for the tech scene, because that's obviously been a focus of ours. So I decided to come back to Texas. Nice. So yeah. uh, did you go to school and watch? I read that you went to American University. I did a, I did a study at, at American University. Yes, way back when. So I did do that. It was only one semester. Oh, one semester. Yeah, okay. One yeah. semester. So how did you get into IT? I met and started working with, um, I've always worked with inventors and idea people. Um, I did consulting for a while through one of the um, big, I I think they called it the six-pack at the time, the accounting consulting firms that kept merging. And I ended up always working with these entrepreneurs, and some of them were highly creative, and I started working with them doing consulting, um, and then... I, you know, just the big ideas. I loved it. Um, so I met a gentleman through family of probably about 15 years ago who had big idea, right, and wanted help. And of course, that's that's just, you know, a siren calling for me. It's like, yeah, I'm in. Let's talk. You know? yeah, yeah, right. right. So we, we kind of started working together. And all three of these companies are based around some of his ideas. And he's not a little little idea guy. He's a big idea guy. So everything that we have worked on has been just slightly ahead of the time. You know, the first company, Guardit, was in portable safety and security. So that you, you, the idea was instead of having secure zones in your house where you, you know, you can't turn off the security system, you have to turn it off to open a door right. or a window. So this was being able to secure a window and have it open, right? And if wow. anything moved, it would notify you on your phone. And this, by the way, was before uh, the Apple phone came out. Wow, so this is like early 
2000, this is, 2010-ish? Yeah, this is, this is way early. Uh-huh. Um, and it was exciting stuff, right? And it kept morphing. And we it was all about portable security. So we ended up launching that company right at the last e- economic downturn in 2008. So we've been through this before, right? right? Um, we had a $4 million funder. We had distributors all over the country. We had like 20,000 customers lined up. I mean, we were rocking and rolling. Our funder lost their money wow. when, the, when the downturn hit. So that was a, that was a big lesson on how to, how to pivot and back out of that and kind of, you know, what do you do? Right. Right. <laughs> that was so we ended up um all of the product that we had we delivered. We ended up um today, I mean, long story, there's a whole long story behind it, but we licensed that technology. So when you have uh your security products like Ring and Simply Safe and all those guys, some of the core technology was licensed from us. Wow. So it, it it was kind of a long way about that, but that's that's where that, you know, portable security became ubiquitous. So nice. um, that, you know, I got started, you know, doing that. I, early on, I worked with a gentleman who designed for Johnson & Johnson. He designed the paper gowns and some of the paper products. Um, and we developed a portable pop-up tent for the beach using the UV fabric, and that was the first of its kind when those came out. That was a long time ago. I don't think they make those anymore at all. But So I've always been drawn to, you know, here's this idea. Let's let's strategize on how to make it work. How do we take it from here to there? And is it going to work? You know, and I've learned you never end up where you think you are. And, you know, you start out here, but you never go the direction you think it's going to go, right. right? It always iterates and you end up somewhere else completely. But that's kind of how I got started. Gotcha. So what was the next big idea you pivoted to? Well, while we were working uh, with Gardet, um, Inspire Living, we were, and this is, I always take conversations with people because you never know where they're going to lead. And you're like, why, why, why are we being introduced to these people? Why are, you know, we were introduced to Project Hope, which is a global nonprofit organization. They do a lot of healthcare um, around the world. They actually had the boat, one of, one of the big ships that was a hospital ship around the world. So, and I'm like, why? Okay, absolutely. We'll have this conversation. Didn't really know why we were being introduced. It was kind of a one-off and we always ask the question, what's your biggest problem, right? What's the problem you're trying to solve? And one of the uh, healthcare workers that was in the meeting said child pneumonia. Child pneumonia is the number one killer of children around the world. Did not know that, right? We're not, we weren't working in developing countries. We weren't working around the world, but that's one of the biggest problems. And it was because they misdiagnose. They have a hard time counting baby's breath rate to determine whether they have pneumonia or not. So they're doing it visually, and babies that have respiratory illness or pneumonia, 90 breaths a minute is impossible to count visually. So we ended up 
experimenting with a sensor that I told you about for guard it. It's a it's a sensor that you put on anything and if it moves it'll tell you that it moves. Right. But we applied that. How would this work on a baby? And and counting the breath rates digitally, right? Instead of visually, which, you know, the the error was massive. And so we experimented. We kept having conversations with them about this. We got it. They got a team involved. Um, there were a lot of obstacles because you have to really understand the organizations you're talking to and what their mission is. This was a one off for them, but this became a global problem and part of the um, um, World Health Organization's goals. You know, they have the I think it was the Millennium Goals. So it it started getting bigger. Uh, we started working with UNICEF and a lot of the larger global NGOs uh, developing um, a device that would strap around a baby. Um, and one of the things that we found out, you can't just digitally count breath rate. You have to determine all these other factors because there's a settling period. So if a baby's crying or they've set up, your heart rate has to settle before you can get an accurate heart rate count. And when babies are small, the margin of sick or not, depending on their age, can be five breaths a minute. I mean, it's it's very small depending on how old they are. So it's important to get it right. So we kept working on this project and um, we actually got recognized by Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, UNICEF, and um, I forgot the other organization for um, for being a global product that could really determine, make a huge difference in global health. Um, we ended up testing it, doing some field testing um, in Malawi. Uh, what ended up happening with that is the the Project Hope got a new CEO, and they decided. They didn't know where to put this. He It wasn't part of his mission. Um, and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation at the time pivoted to focusing on vaccines. That became the big focus in the world, which they haven't. Right. They yeah. haven't that still is, right? Yeah, right. Um, they, everybody sort of felt like frontline front devices weren't as important. They've since shifted back saying, you know, that it, that it actually is. But th- at the time, they just decided... You know, it it was it was great, but you know we're not going to pursue that. I was pushing at the time too of how to use this in um, the Western world, if you will, as a telemedicine device. This was obviously pre-COVID, and telemedicine was very difficult to push, right? Because there were a lot of state by state regulations. People had been working, trying to get telemedicine to be a, you know, uh, U.S. thing for a long time, right? So there was this resistance to having anything like that um, other than maybe the NICU units and things like that. So that that was a challenge, right? I think medical device, going into the medical device development is a, is I think almost twice as hard as doing a regular, any other kind of startup because you have the huge regulatory hurdle that you, that you have to, you know, there's like two hurdles to get over. But once you're in, you're in, right? Um, 
we d- we decided at the time um, I the when the NGOs kind of decided not to do that, which was which was a shame because we had developed a way for the NGOs to make money without, you know, we were going to do a revenue share, right, for the product so that revenue would go into their coffers. You know, mm-hmm. because that's what they do is grants and fundraising. And then, you know, other revenue would go into ours for doing more R&D. It, it, you know, we kind of figured out how to set up this um, joint effort, right? And we were excited about doing that globally. But Project Hope at the time decided it wasn't something that they wanted to pursue because they, they had a new CEO. And like I said, sort of the shift... The global shift happened. Right. And then there was a lot of resistance on the telemedicine side. Um, so we we kind of took that and said, well, I think we're gonna we're gonna shelve this um just because of the level of resistance. You've you've kind of yeah, right. you know, for me it's how how hard do you want to push that ball uphill? And I think right. I could have pushed it harder, you know, but I think one of the lessons you learn as an entrepreneur is your capacity for for working into these in on a startup, right? right? Right. So we had, I had, you know, stuff going on at home. Right. My son got sick. And so I was like, I can't, this yeah. is, this is something we're going to have to, we can come back to it because global health is always going to be an issue, but right. especially child pneumonia. So, right. So, so, so the backup. So how were you all able initially when you all started testing to find babies to test on? Like, what's that? Uh, how does that process look? As well, far the as... the nonprofit, the non... they do field work. Okay. So they they go out into the field all the time, and they are they are giving um, training to frontline healthcare workers. They're uh-huh. doing, you know, delivering medical supplies. So we had a grant uh, through USA to do field testing. So that was all on their their shoulders. We did some here. Um, in clinics, but they weren't, you know, extensive, extensive tests. I mean, this is was external, right. so it was not as difficult of a test uh. as if you were trying to do something internal or testing on the skin. You know, I mean, this was just a device that sat on the baby. So, right, right. <laughs> you know, you know, you get parents' permission and a doctor's office that would agree to that. But yeah. most of that was done through the nonprofit. So, do you think there is going to be ever uh, a way to pick it back up? I think we could. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um it would it would have to be um you know one of one of the things that I per- personally didn't in the in the US in healthcare they want re- you know devices that continuously order, right? And they're very big on hygiene, so it's it's throwaway pieces, right? You might use an item and throw it away like a patch. You can't really do that internationally because they don't have the capacity to dispose of it. Or if the equipment breaks, a lot of these countries have medical equipment that sits and nobody's nobody can repair it, right. and they're not going to send it back. So the whole I think the whole idea would have to be thought out differently. Um, I know there's a level of interest. I know there's um, another group that was trying it for something else. Um, they were trying to use it for detecting fevers and things like that. Um, the techno- As the technology advances and has advanced, the products shift. They get smaller. They get smarter. Um, and I, th- I think there would be 
in in the future for us to pick that up. But we, you know, I'm clearly suffer from serial entrepreneur disease. <laughs> so I, I think at the time when when we did that, we pushed it as far as we could with the technology. Um, and like I said, I, I had other things that were pulling on my plate. Right. And when when the we got the field testing done and then everybody kind of said, okay, we're going to regroup and shift and this is the direction we're going to go. I kind of said, all right, we're going to, we'll put this down for now and come back later. I think had we been closer to COVID when we did that with the, you know, telemedicine took off like that right. as soon as COVID hit, it was like, okay, we're going to just ease all the restrictions and this is, you know, boom, all of a sudden telemedicine is here. So it, yeah. it would be a very different, different story. And I think there's still a need for devices like Inspire because we were, we were taking five measurements on a baby. So it was, it was, um, heart rate, temperature, um, position, whether they were cold or clammy, because what you know that it's uh, stress, stress yeah. testing on the skin. So you get a far more accurate reading of all these diagnostics going on with the baby, you know, and then you could actually send those to the doctor. There's a whole other protocol that has to go into responsibility with who's with the data, right? right? Who's making the decisions about the data? So that's, you know, medically. But, you know, I think in the future there might be. So this was over a course of a couple of years, I'm assuming, This right? was a, over a course of about three years. Three years. Yeah, that we pushed that through, um, three to four years. So when when did you say, okay, this doesn't work? What Did you already whatever you were going through, right? You had some, you know, stuff that you were going through. Did you at that point say, okay, let me just take a break? Or did you were already thinking about the next idea? I took a break. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, for sure. I had mm -hmm. to take a bit of a break because I had some personal stuff, uh -huh. you know, and I, and I think that's something you have to weigh when you're trying to do a company. When, when you, when I had like three things where it all kind of wound down and you kind of get into a, you know, Right. Sort of that lull. It kind of, you know, yeah. your bell curve comes down and you're like, okay, I've got all these other things pulling at me. I need to clearly, the lesson was I need to stop and, right. you know, pay attention to what was going on at home. So, right. so we did that. Um, I got involved with V-Click because it was something that, again, um, this gentleman, Mike Script, who's, uh, you know, he's the idea guy, right? Yeah, right. Well, he had... Um, Somebody come to him and say, you know, Verizon's having this problem with with bandwidth. Um, we were in safety and security with Guardit, the the first product. So the industry was known to him, you know, and I worked with him on that. So he started looking at the video surveillance side of it, you know, and coming up with a solution that was different. Because compression is in all the cameras, but the more data, the more IoT data and cameras that go up on any kind of network, the connectivity, those IoT devices don't ever come off. So you're building up more and more bandwidth. So it's how do we solve this problem? And that's an entrepreneur's mantra, right? What's right. the problem? What's right. your pain point? Let's try to solve it. So he started experimenting with that and came up with an idea. We already had 
uh, relationship with Virginia Tech. We tested a lot of our ideas through Virginia Tech for some of the professors and departments at Virginia Tech. So he took this idea down to Virginia Tech and um, especially one of the guys that worked on Inspire, right? One of the, he was a teacher there, but he helped develop the Inspire device. And they just kind of ripped it apart, right? It's like, you can't, you know, he was like, this is ridiculous because we're looking at a scene the way a computer would. So in video surveillance, you have cameras everywhere looking right. all the time and they're eating up a ton of data. So we looked at it differently and said, how would the computer look at it? Um, well, he, Mike, Mike script did. So they did the math, his, his math checked out and he was able to build an algorithm that actually sits at the edge, can look at a scene and reduce the bandwidth at the edge to zero, but maintain a hundred percent of the evidentiary information. Wow. So it sounds counterintuitive. And this is why some of the professors just went, this is insane. You know, there's too much data. <laughs> yeah. But when the head of the department looked and said, wait a minute, this math is right. This math all comes out to zero. So we built it, tested out. It absolutely worked, comes to zero. Um, we tested that on the Verizon Labs. And frame for frame, we had uh, one video surveillance camera set up, just normal, and another video surveillance camera set up with um, a controller with our software in it. And the regular camera was 4.8 gigabytes, and ours was 158 megabytes. And it was the exact same information that we could replay. Wow. So, you know, for me, I got back involved with this. I didn't really understand how some of this was working, right? Yeah, and right. they wanted me to come back and work with them. But what did it for me was this was when we first landed on Mars. This was like in 2019. I think when the pictures first came out, the first yep. Mars yeah. pictures, I had had a family member um, killed in Denver and they showed us surveillance footage, right? Trying to capture, you know, trying to find the, the perpetrator. Right. And they're grainy and they're blurry, right? It's the normal stuff that you kind of see because they ratchet down the frame rates on some of these cameras if they're running all the time, just again, Because they're, they're running 24. So that explains yeah. a lot. So that's why a lot of surveillance footage is grainy. It, it's, it's very grainy. It's hard to look at right. just because they're they're running 24-7. Right. Right. And right. so this is, it can't be high, high definition because that's going to take up too much bandwidth. Right. 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 So they'll reduce the frame rate. Um, or they play all kinds of games. And then the same day, I saw pictures from Mars that were clear as a bell, right? I know I'm comparing a little bit of apples to oranges <laughs> because – but I'm like, you're taking all these photos in space. We're taking uh, images that are, what, 50 yards away or less, and we can't get clear images. So, you know, I that kind of – drove me to come back to come back in and say yeah let's let's make this thing work um what what where it's actually taken us is we are normal compression is sits in all of the cameras um you you only have a limited amount of compression that you can keep 
you know, doing these packets of data and transmitting them. So we've taken this algorithm into what the future will be. There's more and more 3D cameras and devices, the volumetric data, right? When you get into gaming, when you get into, you know, your iPhone has a, has a 3D camera on it. This is kind of the answer to the compression of 2D of a regular video camera. This is in the 3D space. We're able to reduce the bandwidth at the edge in the volumetric and 3D space so that you can add more analytics. You can push data to the cloud. You can get analytics back and forth um, because that's a real choke point right now. Right. Is being able to, like in video surveillance, they've been late to the game and moving to the cloud. There's a big push. They've been doing it over the last few years, but there's a choke point. There's only so much you can you can do. So, right. you know, bandwidth is a bandwidth is a problem everywhere just right. because everybody wants to be on the <laughs> Yeah, everyone wants to be on the I mean, you know, you go home yeah. and if you have a security camera at home, you know that if you turn it on you're you're getting the wheel on your laptop, right? Right. Because you only have so much bandwidth. So is this would this would this technology be able to improve the quality of video surveillance? Yes, yes, it will improve. It, you can what we've been able to do if is retrofit these cameras so that you immediately get a bandwidth reduction and you can raise the frame rate. You can either raise the frame rate or add new analytics, whatever it is you want to do. Our goal is building this platform. It's a sensory communication platform and to add 3D analytics. So when you add in 3D, you obviously get richer richer data, right? right. And you have a level of compliance, especially in law enforcement, um, you know, it's, it's part of what can I take to court, you know, real evidence that hasn't been manipulated. There's, there's kind of a chain of custody for that. Um, but you, you can definitely utilize your infrastructure better, raise right. the frame rate of the camera, um, and it just – it's more efficient. Right. And, and, you know, helping them on the sustainability and energy level. But it's also going to be really important for smart cities um, because you have so many – so many things running in smart cities between, you know, the, the water sensors, the environmental sensors, public safety, you know, there's a, there's a lot going on there. Right. Tons so. of use cases. Mm -hmm. So as the chief marketing officer, how, how, how do you plan to take this to market? Well, what we've done, we were... We were really focused on retrofit kits to kind of prove the point because, you know, a lot of people said when you tell them what it does, they're like, nah, -uh, no right. way. What's, right. what's, a, what's a retrofit kit? A retrofit is off the shelf uh, box mm -hmm. that has a controller in it that we have our software in so that we can attach it and plug it in to a camera and lower the bandwidth and capture the data that the camera sees. So we use the camera image almost as a validation, right? We need the camera, but the 3D doesn't need to see the image, right? Right. A lot of analytics are on the images. But our goal is to develop and to get a developer community involved for 3D analytics because you're able to do analytics on more things than you had to be able to do with 2D. So, for example, we have a video of 
uh, one of our programmers who has a dog and he had a backpack behind him. And when you look at the camera, you don't see any of that. Right. If you've got the video camera running, you couldn't see it. But with our sensor, we picked up what was right behind him. So, mm. you know, now you can add analytics to kind of start doing some of those things. Um, or, you know, they're doing a lot of AI and analytics trying to determine what's in people's pockets and things like that. Mm. But, yeah, that'd be a great tool. Especially. But it kind of opens up it opens up the po new possibilities for analytics nice. in different realms. Right. So what, yeah. what's been so so far the feedback from uh, the developing community? Oh, the developer community was off the hook. We got, I think, I think the CEO he just kind of hinted, right? Uh -huh. And there were like thirty thousand people that that were like signed up. Wow. Um, he said it was over, kind of overwhelming. Um, so on that sense, you know, that's that's been that's been really great. The the software itself, we are. We've been showing it. We've been it's version 2.0 right now, so we're we're getting to the point where we can sort of hand it to people to play with. We we haven't done that yet. We've been building the IP around it. Um, some of, there's some very big players that are that we're reaching out to now that are very interested in it. So nice. And so what uh, have you all started? So you all have started raising money. Where I'm in the process. Yeah, we've got. Okay. A, we did a bit of a pivot, um, and we're looking to do IP licensing um, as opposed to just selling. You know, we were trying to get out there with the retrofit kit, which we are, but um, the the platform licensing of the IP is really what we're focused on. So, so a a bigger company can license it and then develop under it for whatever they need it for. Yeah, um, it's kind of. I look at it more like co-development. You know, we we don't have to develop everything. And, yeah, right. You know, it wouldn't get developed fast enough, right? For f the needs that are out there right now. Um, one of the uh, one of the bigger companies that we're talking to. You know, they're they have gobs of products that they could put it in um that they're interested in so that the and they've got development teams specific for for their case studies you know and and the developers out here can develop for a bunch of other things there's no limit to being able to develop in the in the 3d space so we we are focusing a lot more on the you know talking and negotiating on the licensing side right now Gotcha. So would that require you you all to go after like uh, like seed funding or Series A? Well, what's you know this is the discussion I have in Austin. You know, uh. seed seed funding can be up to five million or yeah, maybe right. a little more, right? So we're trying to keep it within the seed funding stage. Gotcha. To okay. maintain some value, you know, when you say you know, depends on who you're talking to. Yeah, right, right, right. Because right, right. some of the VCs, if you're at five million, they don't even you're that's not enough, right? Yeah. I, they're they're over on the bigger side, but yeah, we're trying to raise five million right now. Gotcha. So how has the Austin uh, ecosystem been beneficial in, in growing the company? The the contact base and the willingness to make introductions has really been outstanding. We've, you know, we did the other two startups on the East Coast. Um, little different atmosphere, right? Um, it's also different markets. So the the medical market's different than safety and security. But I think the Austin market's been really awesome at 
making introductions and, you know, just kind of opening up and having the discussions. A um, lot of, lot of great uh, investors here that are, that are willing to talk. I mean, I, I know a lot of them came from Silicon Valley to here, but yeah. I think there's a, there's a bigger pool than they're a lot more open and writing checks, so to speak. Right. Yeah. Know? No, um, Austin is just a huge tech scene. It's, it's yeah. attracting so much tech talent. Yep. Um, a lot of companies have migrated down here and it's, it's very interesting to see. It's just like, oh man, so much, so much is going on here. Yeah. And even in the, in the legal community, because, you know, we started talking about needing to negotiate on some of these licensing and, and finding people that can help with that. They've been, they've been awesome too. Right. I mean, and to finding all these people that actually have the skill set that you're looking for, yeah. you know, it's like a rich environment to be able to call through and say, who's, who can I work best with? Yeah. You know, and everybody's willing to kind of share the load. I, I think it's great. Yeah. Yeah. So now, uh, so, so what do you also do as well is you, you consult startups as well? Well, one of the things that I was doing and during, during COVID before I got fully involved, you know, on VClick on a more regular basis, I noticed, um, and, and this is true for any entrepreneur today. You have to understand the market you're going out into, not just the segment, but the fact that the pace of change, the speed of change has accelerated since COVID. Everybody's felt it, but it's just constant chaos, right? Constant changes. Everything is just shifting quickly. I mean, you can see in the news how fast even the tech companies are pulling back and laying off and yeah it's been a lot of layoffs well i mean this is this is part and parcel this is not these changes aren't going to go away so as an entrepreneur you've got to move faster um you've got to be super flexible but i was so focused on the innovation space that i felt there was a there was a bit of a gap because everybody especially in the entrepreneur community would focus on innovation and companies were just innovation Right. And going after VC money like that was the only way. It's not. It's not the only way. It's probably the hardest way. Um, And I think there's a lot of unsung entrepreneurs that are doing it very slow and steady by the bootstraps, earning money as they go, that making solid businesses that are kind of the unsung heroes. Right. It's the unicorns that get all the press. Yeah. Um, but I think doing it, you know, the, the old fashioned way works. But I felt there was a gap between just innovation and really ma- being able to make pivots. So a lot of companies that, you know, in my peer group, if you will, weren't they were struggling and didn't know why. So I actually went and I'm a licensed or a Shrugs. certified reinvention practitioner. So sh- struggling in what in what the sense of just pivoting? Keeping up. Keeping pivoting. Up. What do we do? What do right. we focus on? How do we, you know, they were struggling with teams. They were just struggling across the board. And so what's happened is because the speed of change has hit us all, the old tools don't work. The old planning tools, they just, you can't plan and lock it in like if like some of these big companies plan a budget and lock it in and what happens when the market tanks what happens when you know a major catastrophe now you've got to go back and replan your budget you can't stick to that and i think having the ability to be flexible and having flexible infrastructure in place 
is really important. So it's something that I started focusing on, and it's really about um, it's it's new tools, right? It's uh, facilitating the discussion on how do you plan in times of uncertainty, right? How do you which which idea do you focus on, and how do you know which one, right? So it's really facilitating that kind of thing. It dovetails with what I've done in terms of a startup and working with innovators, and you have to iterate all the time. Any entrepreneur knows that. But this is a little bit more for people that are not, that have teams and teams that are struggling. It's turning fear into action. You know, it's how to do that. How do you just thrive in times of uncertainty? I started doing some consulting with that. Um, there's a kind of a global group uh, that sort of started centering around reinvention, right? How do you make little tweaks that make a huge difference? And you keep doing that. You keep doing that. The tools that we have all used in business were developed when your business cycles were at least 10 to 15 years, right? They're not anymore. You know, I think our parents, it was 20 years. You, you go to work at a company for your entire life, right. you retire, you get a watch, and, you know, those days are gone, right? Yeah. The life cycle has shifted from 15 years to seven years, and now, depending on your industry, it's two, one to two years that you have to reinvent in your business or you're, you're dead. You're absolutely dead in the water. Yeah. So this was kind of, it started as a, uh, there's a, a woman who started this, and I'm going to mess up her last name, Nadia. Um, oh, God, I'm going to mess up her last name. Um, I want to say Jabrevnev, but I know that's not right, and I apologize. I can get more information, but it's, it's, um, um, it's all about reinvention. If you look up reinvention, you will find her. She started this this movement, um, and all we we were some of the early experimenters with all of these tools, and they've really turned out to be fantastic, um, and helping people really wrap their mind around getting comfortable with change all the time, being flexible, how you plan in times of crisis i mean right. uncertainty I, th I think the new word for the year that came out a few days ago is perma crisis never heard that one because it feels that way a little bit you know there's uh. always something constantly just like you know it feels unstable yeah you know there's a war here there's inflation there there's yeah, you know all this stuff all on. the time so how do you how do you build your business how do you build your business like that when the market could shift under your feet at any moment, right? Right. So these are really tools on how to facilitate whatever it is you're doing, and what what your team is, what to, what do you have now that you can work with, um, and move that forward and do it in a sustainable way, and survive. I, I you know, I one of the challenges that I've had over the last six months is the network of people that we've developed, you know, and granted we did a bit of a pivot, but it's, I think it's really important to have a deep network now more than ever because so many people, more people than ever have left, 
and gone on to do something else, which I don't know if you know a lot of people doing that where they're like they're, leave an industry and go to well, another yeah, industry. Well, yeah, they're they're not doing what they. I met them doing some legal work, and they're not doing that anymore. They would they leave and go do something else. So everybody's doing this yeah. self reinvention, yeah. if you will. Right. Um, but it's not just. I mean, it's like Every, a ton of people a lot in of the people network, and some of you know you you're relying on them, and then they're like, oh, you know what? I'm just not going to do this anymore. Yeah. So you got to have a deep network, and right. I think there's going to be more of that. And it's not necessarily that they got fired; it's that they want to go do something else. And right. So, what do you think is the cause of that? Is it just the, how the, the, exactly the, what I'm talking about? It's the constant change. It's constant, it's understanding. I mean, we did work from home, and then everybody said, "Well, do I really have to come back in?" Right. Right. And then there's groups that say, "I really miss the in person. I want I want to see my coworkers." And there's this push pull. I think people are yeah. assessing their quality of life and what they really want. Yeah. Right. How do you want to spend your time? I mean, COVID kind of reframed all of that for us. Yeah. So I think there's there's that going on still. Yeah. Yeah. Now you can do like, you know, a lot of companies are adapting like a hybrid. Yeah. Uh, like a hybrid environment. Right. Come into the office a few days a week. Yeah. Um, is it, you think something like that is, is sustainable or you think eventually that's going to change as well? The hybrid. Yeah. Hybrid environment. You know, like a lot of companies I've seen are reducing size as well. So yep. like like a lot of them have reduced their land, you know, office space. Yep. And it's just shrunk and, you know, just kind of going smaller than having people come into the office just a couple of days a week. Yeah. Well, I think hybrid, I you know, I'm a big proponent that you you get more done face to face. You really it's a different interaction. But depending on your job, I don't think you have to do that all the time. You can you can get a lot more focused work done in whatever work environment you might have. I mean, if you've got a lot of kids at home, you may want to go to the office. Right. But, um, yeah. you know, I think the hybrid is a great solution. You know, I think we figured out we don't need to sit and commute yeah, we don't. for 45 minutes one way every day. Yeah. Right. We'll save the time, save the gas. Right. Um, there's a whole quality of life there. I, and I think... You know, that's the beauty of all this change is that it's it's unsettling, but there's so much opportunity. Yeah. You know, if you can turn off the negativity on the news. You know, yeah, yeah. T t t turn the news off. Right? Yeah. So so I've done some the, the consulting on the reinvention side um, and facilitating teams. Um, leaders, leadership, like what kind of qualities do you really have to have now as a leader? What, yeah. So what is the skill set? Um, and a lot of the old skills are not, they don't play in today's market. And I think that's why a lot of teams are having trouble. Wow. So what, what in, in today's market, what are some skills that a leader should have? They have to be vulnerable and they, they have to, um, be flexible. You know, I think a lot of leaders, there's, there's some leaders that were, this is how it's done. This is what you need to do. Follow, you know, follow. Follow, follow the thing. It's great in the military, but even the military has has flexibility. You you've got to be able to say, I don't know if this is going to work, but let's try it. Let's experiment. Um, you've got to be willing to fail. At and I use air quotes when I say fail because um, you know it's about experimentation now. It's about it's about having a vision and leading a team. Maybe you want to lead a movement, but like I said, you've got to be able to say, well, that didn't work. Let's go do something else. And and I think you've got to meet people where they are yeah. as well. 
do you think this generation with uh, Generation Z and millennials is that easy easy to pivot to as far as like from a leader perspective and it's hard to adapt out of like you know other generations? Um, I think I I think there's a gap in leadership training for a lot of people. You know, I I do. And that's where I see a lot of uh, millennials and Gen Z. They really need some leadership development instead of, you know, some of the old school was rather punitive, yeah. I think. And I don't I don't think that works at all ever. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's about motivating. Um, but I, you know, I think they've got it figured out. I think there's a lot of adaptability in the younger generation. And I, I really think that... Everybody has to remember to put the tack down and look at the person, mm. right? And that's what I mean by meeting people where they are. And I, I think there's a difference in, you know, I can't speak for all the generation, but just, right. you know, I think uh, the millennials grew up with tech. So everything's based around tech. And I think Gen Z, they like they like that hybrid thing. Yeah. They want experiences. They want experiences. At least, you know, that's what the surveys say. Yeah. Yeah, I think hybrid will be here to stay. I think it's going to change and probably become something better. Right. But these are all growing pains. Yeah. You know, it's it's sort of like COVID took the bowl of apples and dumped it in the table. And Uh, it's like, what do we do with it? Right. You know, everything is is in turmoil, but it, it, as unsettling, again, as I said, unsettling as it is, it's really a great opportunity. Right. So, and it's, it's like what you were talking about, the, the shift when the boomers retire, all these businesses that we've all taken for granted. Right. That's what I was know, telling you about. What's yeah. going to happen to them, you yeah. know, because there's a whole generation just focused on so much on tech. But tech doesn't solve my plumbing problem. Right. You know. Yeah, that's that's what I identified. Like a lot of these yeah. home service businesses are just not up to date when it comes down to from a technology perspective. Right. And right. I think this is a huge opportunity in that market. It's, 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 it's a big market. It's a big market. Yeah. Right. They 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 had a stable of customers they've always had. They built over the years. They yeah. didn't need to really put any tech into it. So I think that combination is going to be really powerful yeah. you know there's there's i think that's there's a i want to say the trailer park is here outside of austin where they they bought the trailer park and put in all these new amenities you know a swimming pool and a park and all this stuff for, for kids really made it nice and then they added a tech feature where you could make a reservation ahead of the ahead of coming and, and all this other stuff and they have been killing it. I think it's wow. it's out on the way to um Groon, Green. I think it's out okay. uh, towards towards San Antonio. I think it's out that way. Cool. You know, there's things like that that are that are just really exciting, and that's just looking at looking at all of those businesses in a whole, with a whole new lens. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah, I, I'm looking forward to diving deeper into it and kind of getting started. So I'm super excited about it. Yeah, yeah. So, but as we as we as we wrap up, I always ask this uh, question to my guest. As, as we spoke about uh, 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 re-inter, inter, intervention, um, reinventing, sorry, and 
and what you know how entrepreneurs need to keep up with obviously how, how you know business life cycles and so forth what advice would you give entrepreneurs during this time of of crisis or well it's really it's really maintaining flexibility um but for me one of the things that's been really important that makes a huge difference with every single startup that we've done is picking your team really carefully. And if there's a team member that's just not really jiving or, I mean, a bad team member will bring down the whole thing, you know? So if you're looking at all A players and you've got a B and C team member, and I, I, you know, I use those terms depending on skill set and what you're looking for, but you got to take the B and C because you will go further than if you have a bad apple on the team. It's like, it's like they say when you go crabbing, right? You put a crab in a bucket, you're supposed to put two in the bucket. Because if you put one in the bucket, one will crawl out. If you put two in the bucket, the other one will pull the, the crab down, right? That's what a bad team member will do. It'll pull the entire team down yeah. and do it fast. And I we learned that twice, you know, the hard way. Right, right. <laughs> and and you, you pick carefully, pick slow, and fire fast because it makes a huge difference in just morale and speed and everything that you can get accomplished that that would be my number one thing is carefully picking who you who you choose to work with awesome no well th- thanks for that christy really appreciate you uh joining me today yeah thanks for having me this was a lot of fun yeah i enjoy it thanks All right. yep you're listening to the brilliant ones podcast with me your host donnie adams a show about entrepreneurs and the companies they build. Join me weekly as I speak with entrepreneurs from all over who share their experiences and advice on the companies they created. And be sure to follow us on YouTube and Instagram at The Brilliant Ones.